And now if you please turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians, we finally made it to chapter 16, the final chapter. I think Philip might have gotten your hopes up a little too high. I'm going to actually preach two sermons on this chapter, so we're not going to be totally finished yet. Uh, but we have been in this book uh, for a little bit over a year, and uh, we're grateful for God's bringing us to this final chapter. Paul's been writing uh, to this church, uh, addressing a number of challenges the church is facing. It is a reminder how easily it is to get off track. Uh, Paul keeps pulling them back to the centrality of the gospel and uh, its significance for life and ministry. So now as we look at this concluding section, uh, let us read God's word. Uh, this is 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 to 12, and you can find this on page 1325 if you're using the Pew Bible. This is the word of God. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. And when I come, whomever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. But if it is fitting that I go also, they will go with me. Now I will come to you when I pass through Macedonia, for I am passing through Macedonia, and it may be that I will remain or even spend the winter with you, that you may send me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not wish to see you now on the way, but I hope to stay a while with you if the Lord permits. But I will tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a great and effective door has opened to me, and there are many adversaries." And if Timothy comes, see that he may be with you without fear, for he does the work of the Lord as I also do. Therefore, let no one despise him, but send him on his journey in peace, that he may come to me, for I am waiting for him with the brethren. Now, concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to come to you with the brethren, but he was quite unwilling to come at this time. However, he will come when he has a convenient time. And there will end the reading of God's word. May God bless his word to us as we consider it together this morning. I imagine at least some of you have heard or read that there is a graduate student strike going on over on the campus. And uh, sadly, it leaves me uh, one person short and my graduate students. So this person has stopped uh, doing his responsibilities, has disappeared, and left the rest of us to complete his work for him. And when I questioned him about this, why he thought this was necessary, especially given the fact that our, de our uh, department uh, compensates its graduate students probably as well as anyone on the campus, he said it was for solidarity. Uh, solidarity, children, that means unity, that means uh, working together, which I found incredibly ironic because the only people that are suffering because he's not doing his job are the other graduate students uh, who are now having to cover his work and me, but you know, this isn't about me. Let's not complain. So perhaps he doesn't have a, a very well-rounded view of what solidarity actually means. And now as Paul is finishing this letter, 
he is encouraging a, a type of solidarity. He's, he's wanting them to look beyond just their congregation. He wants to see themselves as part of something greater. Uh, but remember, this is flowing out of this wonderful uh, exposition in chapter 15 of the resurrection of Christ and all that that means for us. And if you just look back at the way chapter 15 ended with this call, therefore, given all this that's true about Christ and his resurrection and your imminent resurrection, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And in some ways, now in this last chapter, he starts to unpack a little bit, how can you abound in the work of the Lord? What are some of the practical things that it means to be doing when you're abounding in the work of the Lord? And so as he addresses these things, and as we look at the passage, I want you to see that his main point is that you submit all of your work to the Lord. And, and this is how you abound in the work of the Lord. And he's going to talk about some specific things that we can do as we love the broader church, as we use our resources wisely, as we invest in people, and as we trust in the Lord. So submit all to Jesus as you seek to abound in the Lord's work. And children, if you want to draw a picture, you could draw a picture of this collection that he talks about taking. And uh, we'll talk a little bit about what we learned from that. Well, the first thing I want you to see, and if, you're gonna, if you would like to, you can follow along. There's an outline in the bulletin, is that we are to cultivate love for the larger church. We are to have a vision for and a love for the larger church. And we see this in verses 1 to 4. So again, chapter 16 might seem just like a bunch of odds and ends. This is often how Paul ends his letters. He says hi from this person and that, but there's a lot of different things going on. But recognize Paul is still answering questions that they wrote to him. So you remember that formula uh, that we've seen throughout the letter where he says, now concerning such and such. And such and such is something that they had a question about previously. So verse one in our text, now concerning the collection for the saints. So Paul is still answering particular questions that they have for him. And since he doesn't explain here a lot about why they're doing the collection and the motivation for it, he's talking more about the logistics. Most commentators think Paul's already talked to them about this collection and they have some question following up. And so now he's kind of reminding them what he wants them to do. And so recognize that this, you see this throughout his letters, Paul, a major focus of Paul's during his third missionary journey was collecting money from these largely Gentile churches, uh, which were out in the Greek world and sending it back to the church in Judea around Jerusalem, the original church, which would have been largely Jewish, which was financially in very difficult straits. And we don't know exactly why there were these financial problems. Uh, there's an indication that there was a famine in that area it's possible that it was due to some kind of oppression or persecution they were facing. Interest, I was very interested. A number of commentators suggest that the reason their finances were so bad is because you remember that initially they all sold everything they had and lived communally. Uh, so we, we really don't know the answer to that, but it's, a, it's an interesting theory. But that church was suffering. And so it was a very tangible way 
to help brothers and sisters at a distance, people you might never meet personally, but who had a real significant need. And so Paul is encouraging them to view themselves as a part of the larger church. And so what he's giving here are some very practical principles for giving. So you see in uh, verse 2, on the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. Uh, We could do a whole sermon on that verse because there's a lot packed into that what, what, what our, our approach to giving should be, right? It should be systematic. It should be disciplined over time. Uh, it should be regular. Uh, he mentions it should be taken on the first day of the week. This is one of the verses that helps us understand and confirm that the church did indeed move its day of worship from the seventh day of the week to the first day of the week. They were gathering on the first day of the week, and part of their worship was receiving the collections. Note also that uh, he wanted this done uh, according to the way they were prospered. And this was to be done by each one of them. Uh, Now realize, they they were not in a world where you received a paycheck, either weekly or every other week or monthly. So when he says, as God prospers you, this would be uh, whatever they were able to trade or barter for or sell. If they had uh, gotten something in that week, then they could take a portion of that and share it with the church, so they were planning ahead. So as commentator Gordon Fee says, on a weekly basis they should set money aside as the Lord had prospered them. No pressure, no gimmicks, no emotion. This is why he didn't want to be showing up and then it's a mad scramble. Paul's here, we gotta get our gift ready and it's a high pressure situation. Now I know some of you are aware that the LCA Jogathon, which usually takes place in the fall, has been moved to the spring because I have a daughter who is relentless in raising money for the Jogathon. And so uh, I'm amazed. She's on the phone with relatives. Uh, Some of you are nodding. She's approached you. This was not at my encouragement. She's doing this all on her own. But this is what Paul's trying to avoid, right? It's very hard to say no uh, to a child in our congregation coming up asking, would you support me? It's a good cause. Paul doesn't want that. Paul wants them to be systematically planning ahead, and he wants them to include this act of love to these believers that are at a far distance from them. Now, Paul goes on here in verses 3 and 4 to say, when I come, whomever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. But if it's fitting that I go, I'll also go with him. So he's not saying, I'm going to come by and you put all the cash in a satchel and then I'll take, I'll take off with it. And trust me, uh, I'll make sure it gets where it's supposed to go. That, it, it, this, is, this is transparency. This is public accountability. This is, you will collect from your congregation. You will take your gift. If you want me to be there to help make introductions, I will do that, but I'm not getting myself in the middle of handling your money. And again, so these these are very important principles for us even today as we think about how we handle the Lord's money and how we minister. But I think above all of this, Paul's main concern is for the love and the relationship that they might show to these believers back in Palestine. So I put in your outline a quotation from 2 Corinthians 9, 
verses 12 to 14, and he speaks again about this collection. He says, for the administration of this service not only supplies the needs of the saints, but also is abounding through many thanksgivings to God. While through this proof, the proof of this ministry, they glorify God for the obedience of your confession to the gospel of Christ and for your liberal sharing with them and all men and by their prayer for you who long for you because of the exceeding grace of God in you. So do you see, it's a spiritual thing. It's a relational thing. It's seeing yourself as, as being a part of the larger church and wanting to give and to minister and to come alongside them. Charles Hodge, in speaking about this, says, even more than the relief of the worldly needs of the poor, Paul wanted these gifts to produce a spiritual effect in promoting Christian fellowship, in evincing the truth and power of the gospel, and in calling forth gratitude and praise to God. And, and so this is Paul, this is a burden of Paul's throughout this letter, that they see themselves a part of the broader church. In fact, you notice in verse one, he says, I, I want you to do just as I have instructed the churches of Galatia to do. And, and this is like the seventh time in the book where Paul says something like, I'm telling you this as it is done in all the churches. He keeps reiterating, you are not just a single entity out here doing your own thing. You're a part of a larger body of churches, plural. And you need to see yourself in that context. Now, I don't think there's any question that, that the main action and focus of a Christian should be in his or her local congregation. That's, that's clear. Paul's going around planting churches. The people are connected and committed to their local church. But Paul also wants us to realize we are connected by a common faith, a common Lord to like-minded believers all over the world. And he's encouraging us here to just keep expanding our vision and to see ourselves in that light. Um, the, the mission committee has been a great help in this regard. We just recently uh, sent money uh, to support a translation of a new psalm book, a psalter for singing, into Romanian. We got an appeal that we thought was legitimate and, and looked good uh, from people trying to make a psalter uh, in Romanian. Uh, we received a letter last week from Christ Church in Providence, Rhode Island, uh, in God's providence. We just prayed for them this morning. They are buying their first building. It's a church plan. It's a big struggle. Buying a building in New England is difficult. So they've got an opportunity to buy a, a, a real nice church building with a lovely sanctuary, but they can't do it on their own. And they're, and they're sending out an appeal to other churches. So there are opportunities for us to continue to come alongside and encourage people we may never, to, never meet. At the, uh, at the meal afterwards, uh, if you can find uh, Pastor Philip or Elder Wes, uh, we are collecting money for friends of ours who've been in our congregation before who are serving God in East Asia under very, very difficult circumstances right now. And all of this is, is to help us think about the church more broadly to love the church. That's the same thing why we're praying for our summer conference, that churches in this area will have enough people that we can have the conference. And so we need to be encouraging us along these lines. It's very easy for us to be inwardly focused, and I know that is a challenge for me personally. And so Paul's encouraging us to love the broader church in verses 1 to 4. Now in verses 5 to 9, 
we see that since our resources are limited, we have to think strategically about what we do with those resources. So Paul here uh, is thinking about coming to help them with the collection. He goes on now in verse 5 to talk about his travel plans. So Philip explained this to the children very well. He's, he's wanting to go uh, the land route from Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey, up around into northern Greece and then down uh, through Greece all the way to the south, which is where Corinth was, and he's hoping that he can visit with these believers from Corinth. In verse 6, he says, maybe I will be able to spend uh, the winter with you, and then you maybe help me and send me on my way. Verse 7, he says, I do not wish to see you now. So it seems like there was some pressure for him. He could take a boat uh, from Ephesus and hop right over there to, uh, to Corinth. And he's saying, I don't want to do that now. I'm not going to just visit you in passing. I want to come when I can spend some time with you. Now, now he has all these plans. And, and yet, what does he say uh, in verse 9? He says, well, he says in verse 8, I will tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost. Verse 9, for a great and effective door has opened to me. Or as the NIV translates it, a great door for effective work. It's really fascinating that his overriding concern is where has the Spirit opened the door? What, what is the best opportunity for us to do ministry now? And so he's got these plans and he's hoping to have these things happen. But what he knows is that God has opened the door there in Ephesus for him to do work right then. And he says, because there are many adversaries. That's interesting also because a lot of us would think, oh, there are adversaries. It's definitely time to move on and go to Corinth. But he says, no, the presence of these adversaries actually is confirmation that what we're doing is working that God is at work. And in fact, Paul stays a total of three years in Ephesus. And the book of Acts actually says that after he had been doing this ministry, he'd been teaching in a school that he had gotten the use of, it said that all of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. That he had a, a massive ministry there. He was training pastors, and some people think he was sending out many pastors to plant churches there in what would be modern-day Turkey. One thing that's very clear about the war in Ukraine right now is that uh, limited resources are a huge problem for the Ukrainians. Uh, even over in our department, we, we have a Ukrainian staff member. And our department raised a couple thousand dollars that we sent uh, to particular relatives so that they need food, they need shelter, they need clothing, they need medical supplies. The, the soldiers need, obviously, ammunition and weapons to defend them. And we understand that in a war, scarcity is one of the most uh, dominant factors that comes into it. And what I think we can easily forget is that the Bible says we're in a spiritual war. And uh, our resources are limited, we know that. And at one level we could say, well, we have the Holy Spirit. Our resources are unlimited, yes, and that's true in a sense. But Paul could only be in one place at one time uh, Paul uh, had to eat, right? he had to be provided for. The same thing is true for our congregation. Uh, there are limits to what we can do. Uh, Paul here made these calculations about what he thought would be best for the kingdom. And we have to do the same thing. Uh, we have to be constantly thinking about, do, uh, Philip can't do uh, 20 Bible studies during the week. So he's got to figure out 
what, is, what makes the most sense based on what opportunities God has opened up and the interest of people and where the Spirit seems to be leading. Now, I don't know if you saw the number on the board over there, but we ended up with over 230 people here. And you might have remembered we've been talking about uh, the, the need to expand this facility and uh, how that might work. And um, we're seeking the Lord in, in this way. But one of the things we've said is, uh, even if we can expand here, uh, there's going to be limits to how big this sanctuary can be. And so this then raises the specter of us needing to think about potentially church planting at some point. Now, if you come and ask me, how do you feel honestly about planting another church? Uh, my response is, ouch. Because I look around at the people in this congregation and I know how unbelievably painful it would be to send a group of you out. No question about it. But the question we should be asking is not how comfortable I am or you are or anybody is, but what is best for the kingdom? What is God leading us to do? I don't claim to know the answer to that, but that's how we have to address the problem. We have limited resources. They're God's resources. God is the one who is directing this, and we have to look to him and not think about what's best for me personally, what is best for God's kingdom. So since our resources are limited, we must learn to think strategically. This is what Paul is doing here. Thirdly, we also need to appreciate the fact that people are the greatest resource the church has. Now, I know he's talking about a collection, and, and that's because these people were starving. And yes, we, we do need financial and building and other resources, but at, at the heart of it, Paul is wanting us to know that the people are the greatest resource. So he says in verse 10, and if Timothy comes to you, see that he may be with you without fear. Uh, another way you could translate that is put him at ease. Make him feel comfortable among you. Now, why, why might Timothy, traveling from Ephesus with Paul, where Paul was, to Corinth, why might he not be at ease? Well, if you read these letters, you, you, you realize there's tension between Paul and at least some of the people in this church. Uh, there's some conflict there. And that, if you read 2 Corinthians, you, you see that uh, even maybe more clearly. And so Timothy's coming from Paul to check in on these people, to talk to them. And Paul's very concerned about how they might receive Timothy, how they might treat him. In verse 11, he says, therefore, let no one despise him. Now, I, I know when we hear that, we're thinking, well, why would anyone hate him? That's not, he's not using this word, doesn't mean hate. It means sort of ignore or to consider someone of, of no account or sort of uh, to overlook them. And, and Paul writes uh, in 1 Timothy, let no one despise your youth to uh, Timothy, right? So Timothy is a younger man, and he's saying there, do not look down on him. Do not ignore him. This is uh, turning it positively, saying listen to him and respect what he says. Again, uh, this is mostly because he's coming as a representative of Paul, and Paul's worried about how they would treat this young a servant of the Lord. And I think if you look throughout Paul's letters, you see this amazing c consideration he has for the well-being of the people that he serves the Lord with. Uh, one of the commentators says, Paul does not see himself as a freelance lone evangelist. 
And you see that here because he, he says here in verse 10, um, Timothy does the work of the Lord as I also do. And in other places, he calls Timothy a fellow worker. Paul was not a one-man band. Paul saw himself as working with others for the sake of the gospel. And uh, again, highlighting this idea that the people who are doing the ministry, that is the most important resource that the church has. Uh, One of our church membership class lessons is uh, to draw a picture of the church. So children, just so you know, it's not just the children that have to draw pictures. Sometimes the adults have to draw pictures. And so, right, what are you drawing? Are you drawing, trying to draw a picture of the building, trying to draw a picture of the leadership? Hopefully, right, you're drawing a picture of the people. The people are what make up the church. The people are the one who do the work of the ministry. I put in the outline Ephesians 4, verse 11 and 12, and here Uh, Paul makes this very clear where he talks about the gifting that Christ has given to the church. And he says he gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelism, some pastors and teachers. So why do we have leaders? Verse 12, for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. That is why, to, to help equip the saints that the saints may do the work of the ministry. And it's a tremendous blessing in our congregation to look around and to see all the ministry that's being done by the saints. If this church were limited to the ministry being done by the leadership, we would be greatly impoverished. It's a tremendous blessing that we have ministry bubbling up. Uh, People saying, hey, I've got an idea. What do you think about a Bible study? Great. That sounds great. Go for it. Hey, I've got an idea for a Sunday school class. Great. We look at our job as to encourage and to help people as they seek to use their gifts in a wide variety of ways. I think this was on display. We celebrated our 200th anniversary last year. And yes, we did spend some money to do that. But how did we produce a book and a documentary video and a concert and some very large parties and public events for the community and tours of our cemetery and teaching times and all the things that went on. It wasn't money that created that, it was you. It was the people who worked and, uh, and, and were a part of it. And, and this is why it's such a great thing to look around our church and to see we have people doing ministry with the homeless. Uh, we have people inviting others into their homes and, and doing uh, hospitality. We have different Bible studies. We have an ESL class. We have all these things happening because the people are the key resource of the church. And children, if I could speak to you just for a moment, I want you to realize our prayer and our hope for you is that each one of you will grow up and be an important member of the church, a part of the church serving the Lord. Because we'll be honest with you, we're going to get tired. And, uh, and we're going to be able to do less and less, the older people, as we get older. And we need younger people committed to serving the church. Now, we hope it'll be this church, but we recognize God may take you all over the place to serve him. That's an important vision for us to have and to recognize that it's people doing ministry that is the greatest resource the church has. Fourthly, Paul here also warns us that there's no place for our egos in the work of the church. So he says in verse 12, now concerning 
our brother Apollo. So here is the last time we see that formula now concerning. So it appears that they had also written Paul about Apollos. And um, it says here, we can infer, I mean, it says, I strongly urged him, or some translations say, I greatly encouraged him to come to you. So it seems that they had written Paul and said, send Apollos back to us. And they had wanted him to go. And Paul had urged Apollos to go. Now, why is that significant? It's significant because if you go back to the first chapter of this letter, the first issue that Paul deals with is the divisions in their church. And the divisions have been created along the lines of, I follow Apollos, I follow Paul, I follow Peter. That the, that the congregation had divided itself up uh, uh, in terms of which pastor they liked the best, which preacher they liked the best. And clearly there was a group there that preferred Apollos to Paul. And uh, we can also infer that Apollos was perhaps a much better speaker than Paul. Uh, the, the scripture describes Apollos as an eloquent man, mighty in the scriptures. And uh, clearly he had a fan club back in Corinth. And so they're begging Paul to send Apollos back to them. And, Apollo, and, and Paul is fine with that. that. That's what's interesting. Paul wants him to go. Now it says here that Apollos would not go. He was quite unwilling to come at this time. However, he will come when he has a convenient time. And it's just speculation, but it might be Apollos did not want to be uh, there with his own fan club. That's not what he wanted to get into the middle of. So he said, no, this is not the right time to go. Maybe I'll go later when all of this dies down. We don't know the exact reasons why he won't go, but what is clear is that Paul doesn't blame Apollos for this situation, and Paul's not threatened by Apollos, and Paul's not worried about whether the people like Apollos more than that, that Paul's personal ego isn't involved in this at all. His concern is the health and the welfare of the church. And Matthew Henry commenting on this says, faithful ministers are not apt to entertain jealousies of each other nor suspect of such selfish designs. True charity and brotherly love think no evil. That's really interesting. Faithful ministers are not apt to entertain jealousies nor suspect each other of selfish designs. But let me tell you something. A lot of us struggle with that. And ministers do struggle with jealousy and with suspicion about others all the time. And I think if we're honest, it's not just ministers who struggle with that either. It's congregation members as well. It's, it's all of us are prone to this. I think from all accounts, Paul was not an impressive person. He might've been somewhat physically frail. He wasn't really charismatic. But he's not worried in the least about his own standing in the church, other than that they respect his authority from Christ. And this we have to be very careful about because we can begin, and the devil's always there telling us, hey, you're not getting your due, or hey, you're, you're doing a lot of work and you're not being appreciated. It's very easy for us to hear that voice in the back of our head. All these things I do, nobody notices. 
That wasn't a problem for Paul because he understood they were all working for the same Lord. He said in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 6 and 7, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So neither he who plants is anything nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. It's a great reminder for us. There's no place for our ego in ministry in the church. It's one of the reasons I'm very excited that Bob Hempel is coming to minister to you all while Philip and I are away. Bob is a humble, faithful servant. Many of you would not know this, but Bob served in our presbytery in the Selma, Alabama congregation, probably the last pastor who served there when that church was doing well, an African-American church uh, led by a white guy, and he just loves people. Uh, Bob went out to the Denver area and then planted a church in Laramie, Wyoming, and has served as a church planter, right, served in older churches, and he just loves the Lord, and it's a tremendous encouragement uh, to all of us as we serve. It's God's work, and we can put our egos away and recognize that it has no place in the work of the church. And finally then, this passage encourages us to enjoy the freedom we have to submit everything to the Lord Jesus as we seek to abound in his work. So Paul's ending this letter with many instructions, right? How to collect the money. Here's my possible itinerary. I'm sending this person to you now. I'm not sending this person to you now. He doesn't want to come. He's doing all this while he faces, as he says, many adversaries. He says earlier in the book, he fought with wild beasts at Ephesus. That's how he describes the opposition that he's facing. And all of this is going on. Paul's not losing his mind. He's ministering faithfully. How is he able to do it? I think it's that little part of the passage that Philip mentioned to the children earlier. In verse 7, I hope to stay a while with you if the Lord permits. There's so much theology packed into those few words. All of this activity, all of this planning, all of these people, it's all under the authority of the Lord. And when he uses the word Lord, that's that's his name for Jesus Christ. He recognized Jesus Christ as the risen Savior who is ruling over all things. And so whatever Paul is contemplating, planning, hoping, it's all under the authority of Christ. And he can embrace that freedom that comes from knowing that he is not God. John Calvin, speaking about this, says, the main thing indeed is that the inward affection of the mind we submit, in the inward affection of the mind, we submit to God and his providence whatever we resolve upon. And, and, and understand what an incredible freedom that that gives to us. Because when, when we come to these situations where our plans do not materialize, where our hopes and dreams are, are not, do not seem to be happening, when uh, we're met with this disappointment or that disappointment, that can be devastating if you believe it's all up to you to make this or that happen. But Paul here is recognizing we plan, we work, we invest, But at the end of the day, it is the Lord who works. And that's a great comfort to us. And it's also a great reminder of how you are going to always abound in the work of the Lord. 
you and I can all only abound in his work because he has already completed his work. He has already worked. That's why you can work. He has already loved you. That's how you can love others. He has already reached out to you. That's how you can reach out to others. He has already forgiven you. That is how you can forgive others. Everything you do is a response to what Jesus has already done for you. Jesus, who has come and lived a perfect life, who has died a gruesome death, who has taken on the judgment of God in our place, because he's already done that. Our abounding in the work of the Lord is merely a response of gratitude to what he has already done. Our family is truly grateful uh, for this opportunity to have some time away and to go back to Northern Ireland where we hope to renew uh, some of those relationships that we had uh, eight, nine years ago. One of the relationships I'm sad to say we won't be able to renew uh, is, is our relationship with Mrs. Donnelly. And uh, even then, I, I called her Mrs. Donnelly. I'm not sure what Philip calls her, but Mrs. Donnelly was uh, Ted Donnelly's aunt, and she was the former pastor's wife. And after her husband, uh, Tom Donnelly, died, uh, she stayed right there in the congregation for several decades and uh, came to church every service. And a frail lady in her 90s came to church every service. And her eyes lit up when she talked about the Lord, prayed faithfully for the work of Christ in that congregation and in the church more broadly. And she was a particular encouragement to our family. She took time to encourage us and it's a, it's a wonderful reminder that as we go through our life, our abounding in the work of the Lord takes different forms. It matures. And she was there. She had been a very active pastor's wife, had come there as a young woman. And here she was still abounding in the work of the Lord. And uh, we went to see her uh, right before we left uh, the second summer we were there. And I knew... Uh, not in a prophetic way, but I knew that it was very unlikely that we would see her again in this life. And so saying goodbye to someone and realizing the next time we see you is going to be in the next life is hard. But what an incredible encouragement that, that this woman abounded in the work of the Lord, passed away last year, and is now in the presence of God, her Savior, Jesus Christ. And, and this is what Paul is encouraging us to do, to get this bigger vision for what the church is, to use the opportunities we have strategically to invest in people and recognize the great value of people, to put our own egos aside and to, above all else, submit everything to the Lord. That's what gives us peace as we seek to serve him, that we submit it all to Jesus, trusting him. So submit all to Jesus as you seek to abound in the Lord's work. Let's pray and we'll ask him to help us do that.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for this portion of your word. We recognize how easy it is to look at these last few verses of any of Paul's letters and sort of skip over them as uh, just kind of mundane matters of uh, logistics and this and that. And Lord, we thank you for showing us that there's, there's a lot of theology underlying uh, Paul's interactions with these people. And we thank you for his encouragement here that we develop our vision for the bigger church, that we uh, see the importance of using our resources wisely and in investing in people. And Lord, of checking our own egos, but above all these things, Lord, of submitting our wills and our efforts and our hopes to you, knowing that our Savior who has died and risen for us knows perfectly uh, what needs to happen. We do pray that Jesus would continue to build his church. Uh, we pray that you would build and bless our congregation here. Give us wisdom and grace and help, uh, Lord, establish the work of our hands as we seek to serve you. We pray for your help. We ask that you would give us that peace of mind that comes from knowing that we can submit all into your hands. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And let's now sing our praise back to the